So I'm Sakib Dadi. I'm a vice president with Bessemer Venture Partners. And if I'm not making a cup of joe in my Chemex at home, I'm having a filtered soul from Phil's Coffee. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Dimitrios Brinkman, and we are back for another edition of the MLOps Community Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with an investor who's been investing in dev tools for quite a bit. You will hear a little bit different tone from me today because I almost wanted to play devil's advocate. I know that in the investing world, it feels that Web3 is out and generative AI and foundational models are in. So I took the stance asking Saqib what he thought about that and almost pushing out the idea that MLOps as a sector to invest in is dead. And this is coming from conversations that I've been having with people who are trying to invest or different VCs and what they're looking at. I thought it was fascinating how he pushed back on that complete idea. And he said, you know what? It's not dead. So let's get into the full conversation. But before we do, let me give you a bit of background and bio on who Saqib is. Saqib is the vice president at the San Francisco offices of Bessemer, quite a famous venture capitalist firm. He primarily focuses on early stage investments in developer platforms, data infrastructure, and machine learning. He's been involved with Bessemer's investments in Prefect, Collide, Periscope Data, which was acquired by Census, PM, which was acquired by GitHub, and LaunchDarkly. Before joining Bessemer, Saki worked in product at Viagogo, an international marketplace for buying and selling tickets for live events. And I also want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, Wallaroo. Wallaroo is a platform designed to be your control room for production machine learning to facilitate deployment management, observability monitoring, and optimization of models in a production environment. Wallaroo caters to AI teams, small or large, working in an integrated fashion in your data environment via SDKs, UI, or an API. You can install Wallaroo on your choice of AWS, Azure, GCP, or on-premise and deploy your models and pipeline to your environment in seconds. Once in production, you can keep your models running in a production environment and up-to-date through capabilities such as hot model switching, A-B testing, shadow deployment, anomaly detection, and model monitoring. So. Get your hands on and grow your skills by downloading and installing the free community edition of Wallaroo and going through the hands-on tutorials that they've got. And we will leave the link to everything you need to know in the description below. There is also a community Slack channel that you can check out and you can get help and share your projects and ideas with like-minded folks. We'll leave a link to that also in the description. Check out Wallaroo and thank you folks for sponsoring this episode.
let's just start with how you even got into investing. <laughs> let's go right to the beginning. And yeah. you started with ML investing even, like when it wasn't even a thing, right? So you've got quite the track record. How did it all conspire? It's, it was very much an accident, actually. I never thought I was going to end up in, in investing. It really actually happened, gosh, call it six, almost seven years ago now at this point. I was an engineer by training, studied material science, which was very researchy, as well as also business. And I knew I wanted to do something at the intersection of both. And at first, I thought that meant doing something in the startup world. And I tried a couple of things out over the years, but wasn't really enticed by anything. And as I was graduating from school and my graduate program, um, I just was, oh, I have no idea what I want to do, but, you know, let me go explore and check a couple of things out. And it just so happened that Bessemer actually recruited on campus oh, no for way. investors. Yeah. And I just wandered into an information session and like, I was like, yeah, this sounds actually really interesting. We get to talk to really smart folks every single day who are starting cool, interesting new businesses around technology and get to learn about new spaces. And that's this is how I just got sucked into this role. And I sort of naturally found my way into a couple of different areas, some of which touched materials, but also some that were more technical on the software side in particular, just given my background. And so that's sort of how the like passion to machine learning infrastructure, investing in the machine learning space came about. So you have seen a lot of companies pitch you. What are the ones that you regret not investing in. <laughs> oh yeah, what's my anti-portfolio? Yes. I mean, the one that sticks out right now, it, because every machine learning practitioner I talk to uh, talks about it, is Hugging Face. I mean, I think Hugging Face has built such an incredible community and product, the ecosystem, in many different ways. And we are, we're stage agnostic investors, so I hope that we can correct our mistake at some point in the future. But for now, for sure, it's the one that very often I think about as Clem had come to, to share the story with us. I don't think we fully appreciated how big, ultimately, Hugging Face was going to become as part of this ecosystem and how transformative it really would become. Wait, and which round did you pass on? This was the A. Everyone? This was, this was the A. Yeah, I oh, think okay. it was pretty much it was, it was, the A is the one that sticks out in my mind in particular. Uh -huh. Yeah. Because there was all the numbers were right. The, the, there was a lot of growth. And I think I did not fully comprehend how big transformers were going to be and how much of a standard it was becoming machine learning ecosystem. Uh -huh. And it truly has been, right? And I think a lot of the growth from, call it, machine learning in its 2013, 2014, deep learning, image net kind of days to today has come about because of the standardization around transformers architecture and a lot of people pushing in that one direction. As you generally see with technology shifts, right? Like it takes some amount of standardization to say, hey, we're all consolidating around this one thing and all of our work is going to be pushing forward this one, this one uh, sort of view of the world or perspective on the world rather than fighting over like competing different standards, almost like Blu-ray and HD DVD, right? Like that's yeah. sort of the maybe more modern canonical example of relative to AC and DC uh, power. But I think that sort of applies in this case as well, too. So transformers are today. What do you feel like is tomorrow? Because I know a lot of your thoughts and basically your brain power centers around what is the next thing? Do you feel like 2022, basically 2020 to 2022 has been Transformers. Does it have a long runway and it's going to be until 2030? Or is there something else that you feel like will replace this eventually? It certainly feels like it has a very long runway. 
from my vantage point right now, from talking with folks. I think from my perspective and speaking with practitioners, a lot of it is how do we make use of this? Like, this is really interesting technology and we don't have the talent and sometimes the time necessarily to make use of all these interesting machine learning models that are coming out of research, other technology companies. And so how do we take those models and apply it for our use cases and help manage and scale this infrastructure to serve our customers better. So it, it is starting to become a lot more, perhaps something that you might've perceived many years ago as you started the podcast in the community about the machine learning operations of it all and actually yeah. productionizing these models. Yeah, completely. So that is the regret. What is the company that you wish was around, but you haven't seen it yet? The company that I wish was around, but haven't seen it. Yeah. It's funny because I, when I was a, uh, I worked in product at a portfolio company of ours, this company called Viagogo, and the ticket marketplace space, and they bought StubHub. It turned out to be more of like a data science role, honestly. And there were a lot of companies that I wish existed to help me facilitate my role back then. Yeah. And in all honesty, I actually think quite a bit of them have been founded today. There's a lot. We built our own in-house data labeling product. We built our own experiments framework as well, too. And I can name bunch, a bunch of companies in both of those areas in particular and across the whole life cycle. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say there's a company that I wish had been founded. I feel like there's actually a lot of folks working on these problems and actively trying to solve them today. And whether it be on the labeling side, the experimentation side, or even on the monitoring side as well, too, there, there is a lot of activity going on on all parts of the spectrum, the ecosystem. And so give me your current thoughts on the MLOps market and how things look through your eyes, because I find it fascinating. Actually, I just saw the funniest meme today about someone who was at a soccer game or a football game and they had on one of the team's jerseys it was the yellow team and then they the yellow team was getting scored on and they were getting beat so the person took off that jersey and boom it was the red team's jersey <laughs> and the caption around it said like vcs changing from crypto to foundational models foundation. or, yeah like creative ai or generative ai I know exactly which meme you're talking about. It's a World Cup yeah. meme as well, too. Yeah. Very topical. Yeah. No, I think there is definitely a lot of heat right now in machine learning, for sure, especially particularly around machine learning models. Is it unwarranted, though? I don't necessarily think so. I think it's very warranted. I mean, some of the, the progress that has been made in foundation models is just startling. Bessemer, we've been fortunate to invest in companies like Jasper AI, for example, which are really leveraging these to great effect. And the growth there has been astounding because the results are so spectacular. And that's in just one use case of marketing. And there's a whole universe of use cases that haven't been uncovered yet that I think will be. That being said, is it happening in the next two years? Is all of this innovation going to happen over the next two years and that's it and it's going to be closed, shut book? No, I don't think so. I think this is going to be a much longer transition than perhaps a bunch of people flooding into the ecosystem right now might think. These things do take time. And uh -huh. it's not just about, hey, we can build these big models, but how do we actually make use of them? And how do we enable not just the Ubers, Netflixes, ByteDance of the world to really productionize machine learning, but even the smaller startups to the mid-sized companies to everyone in between? Yeah. And so from my eyes, it feels like there's been a bit of 
a transition from MLOps having the hype, especially through the lens of an investor. And now it's this generative AI movement and yeah. foundational models. And I wonder, A, do you feel like it's similar? Like MLOps has been around for a while now, and yeah. we haven't necessarily seen this explosion or the adoption that potentially people thought was going to happen when it comes to the tools. Now, the practitioners, I definitely think there is a huge movement going on in that we can attest to by how many people are in uh, the MLOps community Slack and just how many people are doing MLOps these days as their day job. But yep. when it comes to the tooling adoption, I don't know if it has blossomed quite like many had bet on. Am I mistaken in thinking that? I don't think you're mistaken in thinking it hasn't boomed in the way that the people expected. And again, this is perhaps the same as what's happening in generative AI. Like in 10, 20 X number of years out, I struggle to find a world in which we not everyone is interfacing with a foundation model in the open AI codex or whisper or uh, GPT three, four, whatever series we might be on, we will all be interfacing with them in some way. That transition doesn't just happens super quickly, boom, explosion overnight, and then over a year or two, it happens. These do take time. I mean, I think the machine learning tooling space in particular, maybe in, call it 2016, 17, and 2018, certainly experienced that sort of hype cycle and is now definitely in a little bit of the trough of disillusionment over the past couple of years. But there is this steady adoption that you can see from your own community as well. And when I speak with practitioners, it's very evident that people or companies, whether they be those larger Ubers and Netflixes, to the smaller startups are actually starting to adopt these tools in open source or through commercial relationships as well and actually start to utilize them to put models into production that benefit their operations and benefit their users as well too. So we aren't there on the generative space just yet. I think we will experience some of that. The machine learning ops space and the tooling space there certainly did. But now we are seeing, to some effect, the benefits of that hype. A lot of people came <laughs> in, a lot of people started building companies around it. And some of those companies are starting to garner real adoption. now. Yeah. What I find fascinating about the two because I see them as different markets. Although I did just this week see someone, another VC posted like the generative AI type uh, map or deciphering the market generative maps. AI. Yeah. yeah. And MLOps was part of the generative AI landscape now. And I'm like, all right, let's just throw it all in there too. Why not? So yeah. I find that hilarious. Uh, it's VCs. I love you all, but sometimes <laughs> you take real big swings. And that was one that I was like, come on, let's be <laughs> realistic here. Anyway, not just swings on that investing, Demetrius. Yeah. Swings that are, yeah, big swings. <laughs> and you're, yeah, you, I mean, you got to go out there and you got to garner that hype too, or try and like position yeah. yourself because I do understand now that you want to get the inflow of people that are creating the best to companies for tomorrow. Uh, you want to be talking Definitely. to them. And a great way to talk to them is by creating that mind maps, I should say, or yeah, the yeah. Uh, market maps. And on the market map piece, it's funny because a lot of folks, I think, have similar criticisms of the maps. And I don't disagree, by the way. Like I've we've published some, I've participated in putting together market maps. I think it does help you box out the world of a landscape mm. and help you like fully understand it and appreciate, oh, this is where everyone fits, this is how things fit together. But it so rarely is like the real world actually 
funny two-dimensional like box it's a lot more <laughs> yeah. messy and complicated so it's 100%. a good first first try at it perhaps but certainly it's not i would call that like truth of the world or, or the reality of the world yes so one thing though when i look at the numbers of the generative ai space and let's just take jasper because you mentioned them before they have serious revenue like i think it's pretty well known to most people that they went from zero to 50 million plus in 12 months or something like that, which is just a lot of money coming in. And then you look at the MLOps space. I do not know any MLOps company that has had that quick of an adoption and a revenue growth. Maybe Databricks, but they were back in the day. And that's like the yep. one company that's an outlier that isn't necessarily an MLOps company. So how do you reconcile those two worlds? Because I know at the end of the day, you are trying to get the return on investment. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And the Databricks story actually, to use that example, um, was not so up and to the right so early. I mean, the Spark project got founded, I believe it was 2009, 2010 is really when the initial paper was released. And it, I want to say it took until about 2014, 2015 to when you really start, if you go back and like start doing the Googling of, oh, when did Spark really start taking off? It took probably five years from that initial paper to like, oh, wow, people are really talking about this. The open source growth is exploding. And we see that in a lot of infrastructure software companies, whether they be in machine learning or outside of it. I mean, HashiCorp, it was not necessarily a wow, Vagrant and Terraform were launched from day one. And these were the most yeah. important projects. Vault and Terraform, excuse me, they started with a completely different project in fact, that actually a major part of the adoption and business, a commercial business of HashiCorp today. And those projects actually took a very long time and many years to grow in adoption. Then once they started to turn the commercial screws on it, then they, the growth accelerated and continues to compound dramatically. But investing in infrastructure software requires, I mean, having to a certain extent, a little bit of faith that you can build uh -huh. this community and build this adoption and then monetize that successfully down the road. And if you're able to go through those first couple of steps of getting the adoption on a project, if you can figure out the right business model to, to convert it, then they often accelerate very quickly, but they take a lot longer to, to develop than uh, what might look like a consumer application in some ways, right? Like an Instagram yeah. that blows up virally. These things do have some certain amount of viral growth but they just take a longer, a long time to develop. Yeah, I see that. So it's more like the Jaspers of the world and the generative AI stuff is in that ladder bucket where it does have that virality right from the get-go, but the infrastructure stuff, you're not expecting it to blow up overnight and you're not thinking that the revenues are going to be high Yep. even two, three, four, five years after they've their inception? It totally depends on project. I think the thrust of what you're saying is right. I mean, a lot of founders in the infrastructure space, it's funny, are like, oh yeah, we're doing the big Hacker News launch. We're doing, we're yeah. posting on Product Hunt. We're going to do this big launch. And like, when you ask him what the plan of how to develop and, and expand the community and adoption is long-term, it's a little bit of a tougher question. And that actually is the right question for every founder to answer because it's not just that one launch and i'm sure you know this having done the podcast now for a while it's the steady drumbeat of pounding the table for the vision that you have and for the product you have and getting people around the table and involved in the community to help push that forward and that's not a just yeah. one time launch kind of thing this is a long burn of getting folks 
from trying it out to adopting it to then telling all their friends about it as well, too, because it's transformed their work. That's really hard, long work to end up doing. Yeah, that's community building. That's the fun that's part. That's community building. <laughs> yes, it's the fun. It's the very hard part as well, too. Yeah, I think the hardest part about it is putting out a tweet or a LinkedIn post to very low reception. You get one like or <laughs> something and then you or you put out the podcast or whatever to just try and get people into your community and see the way yeah. that you see things. And it just goes out to five people and one of them's your mom or somebody like that. <laughs> so I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the intersection because we have been mentioning the foundational models and the ML ops piece and how you see moving forward foundational models and ML ops playing together. Like what yeah. does that look like in your eyes as we move forward? Are we going to start seeing more of these gigantic models being used for more use cases? And is it going to become a necessary skill that lots of ML engineers need to now have in their back pocket that they should be thinking about deploying these gigantic models? Or is it something that will still stay fairly niche and fairly vertical for the Jasper AI type companies? I think it's going to become more commonplace. And when you speak with practitioners uh, in our portfolio and in the Bessemer network, there's so much interest in utilizing them. Yeah. And I think it will be a core part of the model selection process for any enterprise. And so I think it's now just becoming, uh, it, or it will become important for everyone to be familiar with them and be able to utilize foundation models in some way. I think it just accentuates the need for machine learning operations though, and for MLOps tools. I mean, a lot of companies, yes, some of them will be able to send their data out to an open AI, but a lot of them still want to leverage an open source model like a Bloom and fine tune it for their use case and then apply it within their product and manage it themselves. So I think that just highlights that there's still going to be a big tooling gap or a big tooling need for people to actually use these models that some of your competitors or other companies in adjacent areas are using as well too. Consumers will just demand and expect that from you. So it'll become more important. Hey everyone, my name is Aparna, founder of Arise. And the best way to stay up to date with MLOps is by subscribing to this podcast. Yeah. And when you think about differences now, when you're starting to bring these models in-house, what are some things that you feel like people need to be aware of or people should be looking at? Uh, or what are some tools that you've been seeing or companies that you've been seeing that are trying to address that specific problem of, hey, look, the world's moving this way. Yeah, Everyone's going to be using foundational models. And right now, the way that things are set up, it's hard. No, there's quite a few companies. I think one company, it's not in the best of our portfolio, but that I've always bought admired from afar as well too, along with Hugging Face has been Snorkel, which very much started with uh, data labeling and has totally expanded its purview into other areas as well too, and made a really big product announcement in the foundation model space, leveraging them for data labeling, but also for building prompts and working with foundation models as well too. And I think that type of shift from vendors is something that we will expect as well. These are yeah. one tool in the toolbox, along with many other tools that you might have. Um, and it's great because 
what Snorkel is now enabling is, oh, you have a certain amount of data, we'll help you label it, fine tune it for uh, your model in this particular use case. And now this just opens up the floodgates for not just these Googles and Metas and Ubers and Netflixes of the world to, to leverage machine learning, but all the startups and mid-sized companies that maybe before you would need huge corpuses of data, but now with larger language models and much fewer shot approaches on learning on them, you can leverage them to great efficacy as well. And so those types of products that maybe fit or work within what might be your existing ML tooling workflow, but help you leverage this new tool in the toolbox, I think are really interesting and really valuable. And are there companies that you feel like, or spaces maybe, that you feel like are going to become outdated unless they pivot? Like potentially it's, you're saying, oh, this whatever orchestration tool was very popular back in the day when we needed that. But yeah. maybe there is a space that you feel like as we move more towards this reality that you're speaking of, we're not going to need as much of certain tools. And so they're going to have to figure out where they sit in the market as this comes about. Yeah. I mean, for the orchestration space in particular, we're investors and prefects and just hearing from some of those customers and that team. There's certainly no shortage in orchestration. So it'll just continue to be an issue there. I can't think of anything as I look at like my own internal market map in my own brain of uh, what the machine learning operation space will look like. There's none that I could say will become totally outdated. I think a lot will continue to become more and more important. Now, there was certainly a lot of proliferation of tools, maybe call it four or five, six years ago or so, and there will likely be some consolidation there, broadly into a few buckets around data preparation, model preparation, validation, and selection, and then call it deployment and monitoring and governance. And there's perhaps particular niche tools in each of those broader buckets that might be rolled up into to something that's a little bit more broader of an offering, but all of those things with foundation models will still continue to be important and interesting. And in many ways, become even more important, right? I mean, certainly the monitoring and governance piece, I think is gonna become very significant over time as these like larger, more black boxy looking models uh, start to, to get adopted more broadly. Yeah, that's so true. That is one piece that I think people are going to recognize they cannot leave without. And it is already happening. There's a lot of understanding of monitoring. I think the nuances of monitoring is really difficult. Investors, we often say, oh, a space is too crowded, like this is too competitive. But <laughs> sometimes that's actually a really good thing. Like uh -huh. if there are a lot of folks who are trying to solve this problem, perhaps it also means that there is a really big problem to be solved. Uh -huh. So sometimes it can be construed very poorly, but taking a step back, I think it, sometimes it could be a really positive thing as well, too. I try to spend as much time, you know, parse through the perhaps analogies and really get to the ground truth of sort of what's happening in a space and why it's important. So speaking of monitoring companies, there uh, have been a few people in the MLOps community that have approached me and said, yeah, I'm thinking about creating a new company and I want it to be something around monitoring. And I try with all my might to discourage them from starting another monitoring company. And it feels like and this is what I would love to get your perspective on because it's not only monitoring companies, but there are like a data labeling company yep. that comes out, but they're not getting funded anymore. 
that whole explosion that we talked about, if it was 2016 or if even if it was 2020, that company might be funded. But now it's not getting funded. And is it because the novelty has worn off and there's already the set players in the space? And so since no one is coming at it from – no one is doing monitoring in this super novel way, it's just like an incremental betterment to the already established players – that's why they're not getting funding. Yeah, I think in some of those instances, one, I would say there are definitely monitoring and data labeling companies that are still getting funded. I mean, I think just a few weeks ago, V7 announced that they had raised Shout out to V7. So there are certainly companies that are getting funded. And I can't speak to all the instances of ones that might be getting funded versus ones that might not. But I think in situations where there is already a crowded market, investors will ask themselves the question, what is truly different about this company and this approach? And why should I invest in this one versus the X number that might have been funded and are already out there in the wild as well, too? And to some of what we talked about earlier, that crowded competitive landscape can mean that there is a lot of interest from buyers. And clearly, I think in the monitoring and labeling spaces, that's true. But the bar of why this one versus the other ones is much, much higher. And so you do have to come with a very novel approach or something that's really unique and differentiated relative to others for at least myself, for example, to say, okay, this is the one I really want to back and invest on because I think talking to practitioners, this approach is actually going to resonate with them really well. And if you don't necessarily have that founding the next monitoring company that's doing something similar to what uh, a bunch of other companies might be doing, regardless of whether it's in machine learning or elsewhere, I think just becomes incrementally harder. Yeah. So there are, uh, we can talk all hypotheticals now if you want, or we can go into dig into specific deals. But I am fascinated with what are some things that have pushed you over the edge to invest in companies recently that made you think, okay, this is innovative and this is worth me putting millions of dollars into. When you first started investing, you're like, oh, teams and markets. And then there's this bell curve of like, oh, you then you think about all these other things like business model, like uh, everything going on underneath the hood. And then as you get to the real epiphany point. The Jedi. Yeah, there's the Jedi that still says it's teams at big markets. And honestly, the great teams figured out the really big market opportunities. And I think it's really simple to say, but it's actually really hard to find and evaluate just these extraordinary teams who are doing really interesting things. And you can just see, have a vision for the world that's so different than what someone else might have pitched you in the hundreds or thousands or however many pitches you might be hearing. But this one person really compels you with their vision of the world and what it's going to look like in the next 10, 20 20 years. I mean, the one, the folks who really sort of embody that for me in particular in the orchestration space is Prefect Mm -hmm. and Jeremiah, Chris and the team there, I think are just stellar founders and stellar product folks and really are so deep in the data uh, science and machine learning spaces in particular, that they just shared this vision for a world of orchestration and the way that people interact with data that I found incredibly compelling and was a big reason as to why we wanted to invest in in them. Despite the crowded landscape of orchestration, they just shared a vision for the world that was so different than other folks and clearly had the expertise to do so. So you're calling yourself a Jedi. Time will tell Demetrius, <laughs> but I certainly hope I'm more on the Jedi side than I, than I am on the apprentice side. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You recognize the important thing 
our teams and markets. And when you're looking at the market of orchestration, despite being crowded, I mean, we've got Airflow, which every single data engineer and machine learning engineer has touched at some point in their life, I think. Yet there are these other tools like Prefect or DAG or managed Airflow even. And that's not even to mention the machine learning specific tools, right? The orchestration machine learning specific ones like the flights or the, uh, or ZML and that kind of stuff. And so you're looking at it and you're saying, this market's huge. What do you do to like, how do you calculate that? How do you figure out that market is the market? It's actually as big as you think it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the simplest way is to look at it, or the simplest and potentially most accurate way. These are generally not 100% accurate, very rarely 100% accurate, and are more directionally correct than anything. But it is definitely about the number of potential users multiplied by the potential revenue you might be able to get from those users. That's generally what constitutes market size. And that, of course, requires a lot of assumptions on our end, like how much do you actually think you can generate per user? How many users do you actually think there might be? And in these early nascent markets, the first question of how much you can generate per customer or per user is maybe not as important as like how big or how many of these folks will there actually be? When we first were looking at developer platforms back in 2008, 2009, the very common refrain was there actually weren't that all that many developers and you probably weren't gonna be able to charge all that much from them. No and way. now lo and behold, like that's actually very false. I mean, that turned out to be wrong. I mean, a mm-hmm. number of companies in the developer platform world have emerged taking advantage of both of those two vectors of growth. I mean, Twilio and SendGrid and PagerDuty, Zero, LaunchDarkly and HashiCorp as well too. Like those are all examples of how those things came to fruition. And I suspect we'll see exactly the same thing, not just for orchestration, but for the machine learning ops space broadly. The number of data scientists and MLEs is growing so, so, so rapidly. And in 10, 20 years, I personally believe it's going to be an order of magnitude larger than it is today. And every single company in the world is going to be implementing machine learning, whether it be for your users in in an externally facing product feature or something that's more internal and automating your work internal to the organization. So that's fascinating because it makes me think the market for ML ops, uh, as we're talking about markets, right? And it is very much at a, it's like at a plateau right now, but that is just a natural occurrence and it is still got a lot of room to grow. It's just going to grow once there's some maturity that happens in the space. So I'd like to push back at one point that it is at a plateau. So I think maybe from an investor or hype perspective, it looks like it's at a plateau. Like the outside looking in, but you know something you said earlier, where if you talk to folks or look at the community, the MLOps community in particular, these things are growing, and it may not look like again this sort of hyper growth, just exponential curve up into the right, but it's a slow and steady growth. Yeah. And if anything, that that indicates even more health of the community that people are slow or in a systematic way are being drawn into leveraging machine learning, actually utilizing it for real production use cases. And when you talk to practitioners, whether they be at the investment portfolio company or you talk to vendors themselves. The adoption is growing on every single vector. 
So I think there is a lot of growth happening in the ecosystem and it might not be so like top of mind, perhaps like some other areas, but I certainly see from my conversations with folks that it's happening. Machine learning is happening. And I struggled to think of a world where in 10, 15 years, machine learning is not commonplace everywhere. And in some ways it almost is already, right? A lot of the consumer applications we interface with certainly have machine learning as part of the feature set or the core product in some way. And I think that'll just continue to be the case, not just for consumer use cases, but also enterprises. And we're just going to see that proliferate over the next decade plus. Um, being maybe a little bit more uh, <laughs> down on this. Now, what I find interesting too, from your viewpoint, when you look at machine learning and you look at the different use cases that are coming through and you look at the nature of how companies are doing machine learning and there seems to be like there's one camp or there are certain companies that are trying to attack vertical problems like let's say oh there's a recommender systems for e-commerce yeah. and we can add machine learning to that or even i mean jasper ai is a great example of this this yeah. is copywriting and we're using machine learning with it yeah. those are the vertical solutions and then you have these more what i feel like are the ml ops companies that are selling to teams that are doing much more than can be verticalized yeah I just wonder, is it going to be the mix of that or are we going to go totally vertical and is that going to be more of the other side? But I would love to hear your thought on it. I think it, it, I think as with most things, the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. Like it will be a mixture of vertical solutions as well as also infrastructure solutions to enable the builders. And yes, there's certainly some instances like in particular Jasper, for example, with marketing copy, and we have others in our portfolio like Optimal Dynamics, which helps you uh, optimize trucking routes, something that was totally pen and paper before today. In instances where there isn't necessarily the machine learning talent or the ability to hire those folks, you might go with a more vertical solution or ver more vertical solutions might emerge there in much the same way like salesforce is at some level a database but you don't really interact with it in the same way that you might like a traditional sort of relational database it's a little bit abstracted away for that kind of user but there is still really interesting things happening in the database world as well too that people are building other applications on top of as well oh, um, and point. i think in a yeah. very similar way we'll see things whether they be for particular verticals or segments whether it be marketing or trucking logistics or something similar to uh, e-commerce, for example, and your recommender system to we're building, we're giving you the building blocks and the builders can create new novel things that perhaps don't fit those tight little squares of market maps or buckets on particular verticals and build something that's fairly creative and novel in those use cases. I mean, take the developer platform example as well. Like there is Twilio, of course, and there's a whole ecosystem of applications built on top of Twilio. Also, the attentives of the world, for example, perhaps fall in that bucket, uh, most notably. So I think there will be both. And it's sort of a matter of what fits your segment or what fits your, uh, your end customer better. Yeah, I love that. And I can imagine lots of engineers out there are thinking to themselves, no way in hell it's going to be all vertical. <laughs> that, yeah. that means that their job will become obsolete. And so I don't think that is happening anytime soon. And I really, I enjoy this view of Salesforce is a database, but that doesn't mean that there are not tons of innovations happening 
every day with databases, there's, I mean, there's a new database that comes out every day. So it is incredible to see that. Now, when you're looking at, or when you're thinking about the future, and I know I kind of asked you this one already, but I want to hear it again. Like, what are some pieces that you feel like if I was just out there and I was trying to figure out what a company that I, I want to build, where would you tell people to go look? Where would you be focusing your attention right now? Personally, I am a big fan of like enabling the builders to go and build things. Certainly a lot of interest or excitement that I've heard from some of our largest portfolio companies to some of our medium-sized one has been around actually novel storage techniques. We're hearing a lot of interest in particular around vector databases, like passing the structure data through a model and storing the relevant feature from them. And not just doing things like semantic search, but then also building things like recommender systems and other ML power features that has actually not historically been very easy in your traditional database system. And so it's a very hard, tractable database problem that cannot be solved immediately overnight. But it's one of these more basic building blocks that if it starts to manifest and proliferate in adoption, I think you'll see an incredible transformation across the ecosystem of people being able to actually leverage and use machine learning at scale in a way that wasn't necessarily possible before. And there are actually a few companies that have already started doing that. So perhaps it might not be the best place for me to start a company, but it's certainly an area that I am really excited about and I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. We just got done with our vector search hackathon about a week ago or two weeks ago, and we did it within partnership with Redis because they put out a vector search database. And so uh, it's been really cool to see the explosion of just that whole movement. I mean, you've got what, Pinecone, there's also... And, uh, Milvis. Is yes, Milvis. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so there's a ton that are coming out in that space. And it is really interesting to see all the use cases that they have. And uh I like your view of it on how useful it becomes as we move into this new paradigm that you were we were talking about for the first half of this conversation. There are also a whole other sec- subset of sectors that we haven't even talked about. I mean, perhaps the one that's most, or at least I see is most top of mind for folks, and perhaps even so top of mind for me as well too, is biotech. I mean, the applications mm-hmm. of some of these larger models for biotechnology use cases just I think going to be incredibly transformative for the world in a very good way, in a beneficial way, and enabling early stage companies there to take a model off the shelf or apply it for your corpus of data is going to be a huge opportunity and company to be built and facilitating that. Yeah. And help us live longer. I cannot wait and get all <laughs> help that. Help us be healthier, live longer. Yeah. No, I think it'll be tremendously valuable for society. Oh, for sure. Uh, it's going to give us so many more. Saki, dude, this has been incredible. I love talking with you. I've gotten to dive into what you're thinking. Before we go, I want to hear a little bit, if you're cool with it, just about how you usually are structuring deals. What do you go into? What do you look at when you are investing in companies as far as like the structure goes? Are you always thinking about trying to do follow-on rounds? I know you said you're basically round agnostic, so you can do whatever you want. Do you like that idea of 
doing follow-up rounds? Do you like to have that locked in with a founder? What does that look like? Yeah. So Bessemer, we're a stage agnostic firm, invest everywhere from seed to growth. Perhaps the most salient example is Twilio, where I believe we led their seed round, which back in the day were much smaller, with a $125,000 check and invested over $75 million in the life of that company until it went public. And that is what Bessemer we like to do is invest early and follow on and lead rounds until exit. And we tend to be very thematic as a firm, so very, go very deep into a particular area of focus and invest in the best company regardless of stage. And so in the machine learning and software infrastructure spaces, I like to invest at the seed, series A, and even series B stages that support the companies all the way through until exit. So hopefully for anyone who's building, whether it be early stage or what may seem like a little bit later stage in growth, we're excited to, to have a conversation and would love to, to speak with anyone building for some of these problems that we talked about today and building for machine learning in the future as well, too. And now that we know you are a sucker for infrastructure tools and enabling the builders, I think that is going to make it much better for anyone out there who is uh, thinking about enabling builders and what they do. So what about when you're looking at a company, how long does it generally take you and, and how has it changed over the last two years yeah. from the time that you first meet with that founder to the time that you invest? Yeah. I like to say the process can take anywhere from days to years. I've had some founders where we've met them and known them for many years before we've actually entered a formal partnership and really invested and been part of their cap table. And some where it's been much shorter and days to weeks long process. And certainly over the past couple of years, it was on the shorter end than it was on the longer end. But we were going to meet always to meet our founders timeline on fundraises. My one gratuitous perhaps piece of advice for founders would be to really take the time to get to know your investors. And I don't say that just selfishly so that we can have more time on the process, but really you're spending probably seven to 10 years with this person potentially on your board. And that's a really important relationship to have. And you can't develop trust overnight and in the span of a few days. It's good to, to be able to have open dialogue before you, you sign the term sheet and before you really enter, enter the formal uh, partnership there so that you know who, who's going to be on your board and who you're working with. Have you ever had to fire a founder? Where's the fire a founder? We've had to part ways with founders every so often. Yes, it has. Thankfully, it's happened mutually where we recognize it's for the good of the company. And sometimes, unfortunately, it has had to happen. But in those instances, I think we've been able to do it in, a, in an agreeable way. So I'm thankful to, for having that experience thus far. Yeah. And it's interesting on that because I've, from what I've heard, obviously, I don't know too much about your world and your day-to-day, -day, but those companies that really are doing a nosedive, <laughs> those are the ones where you just kind of say, all right, you know what? We can't do much about this. And sometimes it's because of a founder, sometimes it's because of a market or whatever. And you don't necessarily have the ability to spend as much time with those founders or those companies. And uh, and those ones maybe are the ones that need the most help, but it just takes up too much time. Is that a correct assumption? No, I'd actually disagree with that. Uh, I really disagree with that, actually. And it's not always in the instances where things aren't going well that we might mutually part ways with the founder who is the CEO and they transition into to another part of the business. Sometimes it is when you hit a different level of scale. Sometimes you need to shift leadership to another person who might be 
well suited to take the business to the next level. And there's multiple examples of that in the infrastructure software space. And I think the most salient, most recent one that is really well known are HashiCorp, right? Where Mitchell and Armand were really the founders and creators of the projects. And Dave came in as CEO and has done an incredible job there. And I think that was beneficial for the organization company as a whole. So, so there's a lot of those instances, of course. And in terms of where we spend our time, we spend our time a lot with companies that it might always be up and to the right. Rare, so uh, so rarely is it always very up and to the right with no kinks along the growth curve. These are often very nonlinear stories and uh, are very bumpy along the way. So we don't orphan, and I hope none of our other peers orphan any companies, certainly not. We spend a lot of times with companies where it may not seem like it's always going right in one or two quarters or a year or so. But, you know, as venture investors, we're trained to take a long-term perspective on things. And so we're partnered for the long-term and the long-term outcome of the company, whether it may look like a local minimum at the time, but we want to help every single one of our companies. Yeah, I imagine there's founders that can pull a rabbit out of the hat. And you've seen that happen where maybe they do have those bumpy quarters or bumpy years, and then they pull it off and it is back up and to the right. And then there are other ones that for whatever the case, maybe it's not their own doing. It's probably more the market. It just doesn't get there and they have to abandon the company or the company goes under. That inflection point, or have you seen anything that you can pass along to companies that may be going through a rough patch right now? Yeah. And in particular, there's definitely a rough patch happening right now. I think we're starting to see a lot of enterprise pull back on spending, and that's obviously affecting some of our own portfolio companies as well, too. And it sounds very easy to say, but I think it's true. These periods of contraction can often craft some of the best companies, and some of the best companies will emerge from this opportunity. It takes a lot of persistence to get through it. We just published a a podcast with the founder of StubHub and Viagogo, my former employer, actually, and he talks about navigating the complex waters of the past two decades, having started both of those businesses and seen COVID totally decimate the live events industry and have to survive that. But they've come out stronger as a result of it. So yes, again, these journeys are not quarters long or years long. These are taking many years to be a founder and see these things all the way through. And so the piece of advice I give all of my portfolio company founders is really build a company for the long term. And with these local sort of minimums along the way of this happening in 2022, 2023, I firmly believe in particular in the machine learning space and the broader infrastructure software space, a lot of incredible work is happening. And we're going to empower a lot of users to do their work better. And it, consumers to experience products in a much better way, whether it be through machine learning or infrastructure as code. We're helping a lot of folks and the focus and vision should always be on that. Let's build a business around optimizing for our end users and our end customers. Excellent. Saki, man, thank you so much for coming on here. If someone is starting a company or is looking to fundraise, best way to get in touch with you, what is your favorite way to talk to people? Feel free to reach out to me at LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a note, dadi at, at bvp.com. I am, uh, I'm around by email, so uh, feel free to reach out whenever. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on here, man. And really uh, taking a different opinion and approach and playing devil's advocate with me. I love it. And I love the work that you've been doing. I love chatting with you whenever I get the chance. It's always enlightening. Always fun to chat with you. Thanks so much. My name's Adam Strucker and I'm head of machine learning engineering 
at Origami Energy here in the UK. And I'm bothering you today to recommend you subscribe to the MLOps Community Podcast to keep up to date with a lot of the brilliant goings on within the community and get a glimpse at what some of the greatest minds across the MLOps space are up to. (laughs) 